Harper Academic Calling, Morgan Jerkins. Listeners of our podcast series will already know the New York Times bestselling author Morgan Jerkins for her two works of nonfiction. Her debut essay collection, This Will Be My Undoing, followed by her nonfiction work, Wandering in Strange Lands, which was published just last August. Morgan now has her second title of a pandemic published, this time a novel, Call Baby. Call Baby is a story about women, about the women in a family, the Melisson family, who have the call, and then decide how this commodity can work for them. Their story involves issues of gentrification, capitalism, race, and greed. Call Baby is also very much the story of Harlem in New York City and the sounds and the people that make Harlem come alive. I think Morgan's novel would work well in courses on contemporary Black women's fiction, contemporary Black women writers, in courses about place, particularly New York City and Harlem, or in courses that thematically focus on sound in Black and African-American neighborhoods, or the commodity of Black bodies and gentrification, or courses on magical realism in fiction. There's a lot on offer here. We always enjoy having Morgan as a guest, and we're glad she's the latest three-peat in our podcast collection. As this was recorded during work from home, you can hear again in the background my cat. I think she and Morgan have their own magical realism connection because she seems to be the loudest when she knows it's Morgan on the other end of a Zoom call. Call Baby is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Harper Books. All right, so joining us today on the podcast again uh, for her third time, we have uh, Morgan Jerkins. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for coming back and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. So we are talking about your debut novel, Call Baby, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. now out in hardcover. This is your first novel. So I guess to start out with, how does it feel, first of all, switching from nonfiction to fiction? And what about the process of writing a novel was most different for you coming off of two nonfiction publications? Okay, so what I will say about writing fiction instead of nonfiction. Um, it's a glorious experience, I would say. And the reason why is because I feel like I'm coming full circle with Call Baby. Um, I actually have been writing fiction since I was a teenager. I got into nonfiction relatively late, not late to everyone else, but just late to me. Um, when I was in um, upperclassman year of college, my senior year, and I started to get into trying to write op-eds and things like that. Um, I thought of with the, I thought of the idea for Call Baby when I was um, at Bennington College where I was pursuing my MFA, and it started off as a short story, and you know I showed it to Alexander Chi, who was my advisor at the time, and he told me that it deserved to be a novel, and I'm glad I took him up on his advice. Um, it's interesting because you know Wander in Strange Lands was released last August, and. It is an extraordinary and unbelievable experience to release two books of different genres in the same pandemic. So it feels it feels kind of seamless to me because I'm in the same place. <laughs> um, and yeah, what was the second part of the question again? Of just in terms of writing it? Yeah, what what made it feel? What about the process of writing it made it feel oh, different from nonfiction? Oh, because. My last two books were written in a shorter period of time than Call Baby. Um, I wrote This Will Be My Undoing in a matter of months, uh, probably two months or something. I wrote Wander Strange Lands, I 
probably over two years, but uh, Call Baby has been in the making for six years. And so I, I think it was with the fiction that I realized that as your novel is developing, so are you in terms of uh, maturity. So this book has, has just gone through so many iterations because I'm changing and my obsessions are changing too. So, you know, I always knew I wanted to write about Harlem because part of the reason why I moved to Harlem, a big reason was because of the literary history. Um, and I knew that I wanted to talk about, talk about city living and what it's like to be someone living in this huge metropolis and what your body means in this particular space. But the, the emphasis on black motherhood actually came in 2018. And that's why I really ramped it up then when I learned so much about the precariousness of that role. Um, so it was, I just listened to more of what the world was saying to me, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I definitely wanted to heighten that in this book. Yeah, so one of the things that this novel is about, as you just said, is about um, Harlem. Um, in some sense, it might be a little bit about, about sort of New York City as a whole, but very much Harlem in particular. Why did you want to write so... I don't know. To me, in some parts, when I was when I was reading it, I mean, I I know where those streets are, right? I okay. I, I know I know where you're placed, and when mm -hmm. you're placing these, where you're placing these characters in this book, mm -hmm. and and a lot of it seemed, quite honestly, like a love letter to Harlem. Oh, thank you. So why, I guess, why was it so important to make Harlem in particular such a big part of this book? Oh, because I owe Harlem so much. Um. Harlem has really taught me what it means to live abundantly black because there are so many people of the diaspora here. And it's one of the few places on earth that I don't think about respectability in a sense. Like I know that if I need to go to the bodega and I don't feel like getting ready and I still have a scarf in my head, I'm still going to be acknowledged and treated um, like a human being. Um, and it's that type of freedom that I love. Um, and so I, I wanted Harlem to be as much of a character as the women that I showcase in this book because there's so much life here. Um, and it's so culpable from the food you eat to the sounds you hear at all hours of the day and night um, to the music and just the, the natural hum and the rhythm of this neighborhood in particular. So that's why like, I wanted people to... Um, to visualize it, even if they've never been here, to visualize what this restaurant is like, to visualize what, visualize what this avenue is like. And it was particularly important for me to do that um, in the final stages of revising this book because it was during the pandemic. So because everything was shut down and, and everything was so silent, I really had to recreate um, in my mind how full of life this neighborhood is. Yeah, and I think you did it really well because it was really nice to see so many um, people and so many sounds. And something that really struck me about this book is, number one, it's a book um, about a family, the Melanson family, um, and generations of that family. But in particular, and as you said before, about black women and black motherhood. And not just, like, we see a lot of people and particularly a lot of women gathering in different locations, whether it's, you know, church or, or their community meetings or anything like that, but, but we hear them. So I guess, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I guess one, um, one place to start is, first of all, why was it important for you to have readers also hear this community, particularly the community of women, but also just mm. hear Harlem? 
all because, oh my goodness, because there's so many conversations that happen. Um, I have, I mean, I've been talking so much about the importance of sound um, in black life, and I don't just mean that with music. I mean that just in conversation. Um, one of the things that annoyed me, I'll be honest with you, when I first moved to Harlem was that it could be 2 a.m. in the morning and someone's having the most exuberant conversation outside. It could be a lover's quarrel or whatever. It used to bother me. But then I realized that even if it's annoying, I'm from suburbia. Sound is very uh, stratified. Uh, you might hear somebody open up the mailbox. You might hear a bark in there, but the sound of people conversing is is kept tightly in the house. And so when you're in Harlem, which or New York City in general, everybody's on top of each other. Everything bleeds through the walls, the doors, everything. And I thought about community. I wanted this book to have a pulse. I wanted it to feel like if someone put their hand on the pages, they could feel the vibrations of someone's voice speaking back into that palm. Um, and that was what was important to me because even though these women aren't real, they're real to me. Each and every one of these female characters are an amalgamation of some particular sect of women that I've met in my life who has been trying to survive and keep themselves together and their families together for better or for worse. Um, so that was what was important for me is that I know that it was written dialogue is very two dimensional, but I wanted it to be full. I wanted it to be like, imagine what would be the timbre of this person's voice and, you know, things of that nature. Uh, and I, and also just, um, the intimacy of black women's conversations. You know, I, I, I touched upon it a little bit in my first book, but like so much of black women's conversations um, have been kept in certain secret spaces, right? And that's what I wanted people to see. Like even in this brownstone that is, de this, is decaying, there's all these corners and rooms, the dining room, uh, the basement, uh, my mom's uh, study, where all of these pertinent conversations to the legacy and continuation of this family are happening. The Melisson family, generations of it exist in this book in one brownstone, which is crumbling, which we will get to because that was a very interesting part of this story. A bit of Edgar Allan Poe crumbling walls around us. But <laughs> this family was very interesting to me um, from the matriarch to the sisters and how the sisters are so different from each other and the various children, either biological or not, or assumed biological. What was it about exploring black motherhood through this family that was so interesting for you, that was so necessary for you? Because you're right, black motherhood is, is a very precarious thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so why choose these women to tell a part of the story of black motherhood? Um, because of survival, because of the decisions that we make, um, or not we, um, I'm not a mother, um, but the decisions that black mothers make um, in the interest of their child. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a fan of hyperbole. I like taking something and then stretching it still to make a point. Um, and for me, um, I, I thought to myself, okay, well, let's take this call, right? This call that has these healing properties. Is it really out of the norm that people are seeking black women to heal and uplift them when they when we already see that has been happening for centuries? 
Um, uh, now they're making a profit off of it. Instead of this being unpaid, they've created a, a, a capitalistic enterprise off of it. And what does that mean um, in terms of family and duty and, and survival? Um, it was important for me to showcase the women these way because they are imperfect. They love each other, but they can't stand each other because as much as they try to keep it together, they're also imprisoned by this tradition. Um, and as much as they think that, you know, they're doing something for other people, they are pariahs in their community. And so I am very interested in paradox, particularly with black women at the center, because oftentimes we have so many meeting, meet, excuse me, meanings um, conscripted onto our bodies without our say-so. And I wanted these women to say, well, yeah, we... No, we're going to turn that back on each other because we're special and we're going to make money off of it, but still within this system. So how much autonomy can you really have? And I think that was one of the burning questions that I have while, while reading, while, you know, writing it. Um, and, I, and I just love writing great characters. I like writing characters where someone says, I don't like this person, but I can understand why they did it. If I can have a reader do that, especially with a black woman um, at the center, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, and I, and I think too, like something something that you just said about how black how we how we rely on black women to heal us. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that has happened sort of writ large over the last few election cycles, in in particular. Um, uh -huh. But it's also this idea of black women's bodies sort of mm -hmm. combining the ideas of black women's bodies, capitalism, and greed. Because mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. here here's a family who has a gift, and mm -hmm. uh, or some mm -hmm. of the family members have a gift, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we are trying, they are trying, to use this gift to their advantage, both in terms of society, but mostly, you know, capitalistically mostly economically yes so was that mm -hmm. was that a difficult choice to make to sort of make them pariahs i guess if that's not too strong a word to make them pariahs in their own community because there is judgment on them within within the community in harlem in which they live because mm. this is a family that that isn't seen as helping bl other black women in their communities right right okay um Yes and no. Okay. I know that's not an easy answer, nope, but that's... yes and no. <laughs> um, the reason why is because when I thought of my short story, the whole call-bearing enterprise did not exist. There was a young girl who abandoned her child who happened to be happened to have a call, but the, all, the whole capitalist enterprise thing came much later um, when I was writing like the second or third draft of the full novel. And so it was hard for me because I was like, Who's going to believe this? You know, but who's going to really believe this? Um, and, and granted, there there are people in the past who have written about the call, um, you know, and then David Copperfield, which I have a quote from that story, and also Baby of the Family from Tina McElroy. So there was precedent. I was just taking it in a different direction. So I was a little worried about doing that, but I also was like, again, there's an historical precedent for bodies being seen as capital mm -hmm. um, off to our expense. So how do you, what if I wanted to subvert that? Um, what I will say about the difficulty in this is because I had to contend with some difficult truths about capitalism. Mm -hmm. 
And it's and it's and I think that also what's with the with the pandemic is like you realize the disposability of people's lives. Um, and I think in, in Harlem, like it's rapidly gentrifying. It has been rapidly gentrifying. Part of the reason why I started the novel in the late nineties because I researched and saw that that's when the seeds of gentrification were actually starting. Mm-hmm. I thought it was actually the the late aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard for me because it's like you have these women who are black, they love being black, they love their culture, um, but in order to stay in this neighborhood and to not be uprooted again, they have to make more money because they see everything around them from the stores on the block to the people being displaced or erased altogether. But the, in order to be able to get that kind of money to remain in the neighborhood, especially with something that constantly needs upkeep like a brownstone, they have to get it from outside the community. And that's the hard part, right? It's like you're trying to survive, but you can't even rely on folks from within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and let's talk about that brownstone because that okay. that brownstone um, <laughs> is is a fantastic and fantastical element, I think, um, throughout the novel because the, the house takes on its own properties, if you will. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So what was it like creating that house and, and those and those cracks and essentially the mythology? Because you also have something else that's unique um, to Harlem and I think especially to New York City now is that you have one family owning a house, right? That's a bit of a, a unicorn in and of itself. Absolutely. So what was it like building and constructing that house? Well, I'm going to give you all a tip. Um, If you go to 130th and Lenox, there is a famous street there called Astor Row. And that is where I lived when I first started thinking about Call Baby. And it was in one of those brownstones. It was multi-level. Um, at night, and now that I think about it, it's probably mice. But when I would be there at night, I would hear things in the walls. I would hear things in the walls. The, 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 the brownstones had been around for years. And I just was like, I, I just, I never, I felt like someone was always in the room with me. Again, it might have been mice, but it, it just felt like there was a pulse there. Um, and so when I thought about the brownstone, I said, this house is lived in. And I don't mean that it's like this is a family that has been here for generations. This is a family that has has played a cosmic role in people's lives. And that's why I started it with um, Layla and the miscarriages that she's had and, and her and her, you know, flirting with fate, basically, or trying to temper fate with the intervention of this call bearing family. Is that for me, and I'm a little woo-woo. I admit it. Like I I'm woo-woo. I feel like the reason why I had to make the brownstone that they've been so personified is because you can't deal with people's lives and spirits and not have that heaviness come like remain somewhere. And so that's what I wanted to demonstrate in the recreation of this brownstone is that there's a stuck energy there. You see it in the cracks, you see it in the shadows, you see it in the smell. And the only person that really knows that something is wrong to a heightened degree is Iris. Like, my mom knows. But she's kind of in denial because she's like, look, I'm not being uprooted again. You know, she's a migrant from Louisiana, and she's dealing with that displacement, um, maybe the trauma of displacement. And so, yeah, like, I, I, wanted this, I wanted this brownstone to be in decay to show everyone that 
there's a reckoning happening on a spiritual level that you're going to see towards the end, but it's right from the first chapter. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing to me. And one of the things that I liked um, most about the book, because I have a preoccupation, I think, when I when I read things, I have a preoccupation with um, with space and place. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so the fact that this was such a Harlem novel was super interesting to me. And, and the fact that this house um, creaked and literally cracked um, wide open, depending on what was happening, uh, that was super interesting to me because it was almost like... Um, it was almost like being able to picture what, what it is. I think you did a really great job on the descriptive parts of, of what happens when, as people's lives were cracking open and as this family had fractures sort of big and small within it, that was reflected in what the house was doing and how it was, you know, settling and breaking apart. Um, right, and then right. If, and then, of course, at the, at the end when it, you know, is, is exploded. Um, right, but I was going to say, like, I actually hate writing about space. And I think having this conversation, which makes makes me realize, like, maybe I hated writing about space as I was growing up and maturing as a writer is because when you go up in suburban Jersey or suburbia anywhere, there's a lot of monotony. Yeah, but suburban Jersey, as someone yeah. who also grew up in yeah. suburban yeah, it's Jersey. Like there's a lot of monotony. It's like the, to, the, to the build of the houses, everything. And if you go down up like the, 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 the pedicured or manicured, see, manicured lawns, and you all see the same features. So I'm like, there's a room. There's a room that, you know, someone's in it. And I might describe some type of addition, but that's it. But when you are in New York, and people always tell me this, like, you have to be aware of where you are at all times. Even if you have your earbuds, neat, like, deep in your canal, you have to know time and space, especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, being in Harlem kind of pushed me and to write about this brownstone in such a, in a particular and peculiar way because, you know, even when you're sitting down somewhere and you're just senses, you have to be on. You're interacting with so many stimuli in a way that you're not if you were perhaps in a suburban setting. So something else in this novel that is thematically important is the is magical realism because you do use magical realism uh throughout this book in in a couple ways what was it like that magical realism isn't something that's i think easy to do and i I think it's difficult to have readers believe what you're trying to do with magical realism so was that something that was hard for you to learn how to craft or was that kind of an easy draw for you it was a little bit difficult because with the call thing, it's like, uh, who's going to really believe this? Even Af- some black people I knew didn't know about the African-American folklore tradition of, call, of the call. Um, but then again, I also had literary ancestors. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, flying and mm-hmm. the Song of Solomon, for example. You know, you've had soothsayers and, and Shakespeare. So it's like, it's it wasn't that difficult for me because it wasn't like I was creating an entire new world, mm-hmm. right? Like Game of Thrones or something, like complete sci-fi fantasy. And also, even though it's fantastic or magical, it didn't feel that magical to me in a sense. And okay. what I mean by that is like, and I don't mean to say it in a way that um, uh, diminishes black people's humanity, mm-hmm. but black life to me is the fantastic. And this, and what I mean by that is, 
the reason why there's two parts in this book is not only to delineate the passage of time, but to show that anything that's happening in the first part is going to have a call and response in the second part. Mm -hmm. Whether it's something that someone has said, whether it's some type of place, um, or whether it's a particular person or an action, it's going to have an echo. Mm -hmm. It's going to have a full circle moment. And even when I was writing it, I was like, oh my God, it almost seems too clean. Like you ever read a book of you and it's like, this was too convenient to end this plot point this way. And I, and I hate to say it like, it might be a question, but like that's the magic of it. Because even in my life, there have been things that have happened to me where have come full circle. Where even sometimes I don't want to believe myself, but it happened, mm -hmm. and it speaks to the connection and and the community. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was difficult for me to in inject that in it because like it's a call, it's New York, what? But I was also like, it, it just felt real to me, and even though I was talking about this this fantastic experience with these women and their bodies. So, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is great.